I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater, where we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, this is a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection with some background on the actors, perhaps the director, and if I'm doing my job, maybe you'll get a half amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend and give us a favorable review. This week, we are kicking off this month's theme, Exploitation Much? That's our selection of interesting exploitation films that really leave an impression on the viewer. This week, we are covering 1977's black exploitation comedy classic, Petey Wheatstraw, The Devil's Son-in-Law. Join us! Exploitation. To some, a dirty word. A film that was just made to generate a quick buck, trading on plot, acting, and effects for lurid depictions of sex, shocking violence and gore, and often shameless and sensational depictions of rebellion and mayhem that stood in a direct challenge to authority. To me and other like-minded individuals, hey, that's our bread and butter when it comes to cinematic fare. Mostly designated as B-films and made outside of the traditionally viewed clean Hollywood model, exploitation cinema covers a wide swath of genres and was independently produced to be consumed in smaller theaters, grindhouses, and drive-ins, places that constantly needed films to show to compete with both mainstream tastes as well as the growing public consumption of the medium that was television. This week's selection falls into the category of black exploitation. That's an exploitation subgenre that emerged out of the cinematic counterculture pushback of the 1960s and became apparent in the art of the 1970s. During a time when African American communities were feeling alienated by the very real failure of political action to dynamically change the American culture at large, Case in point, the back-to-back assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, coupled with Richard Nixon's election in 1968, did not understandably elicit feelings of confidence in the Republic for African American citizens. This alienation began to seep into the art and the culture, and while there were indeed movies that were marketed towards the African American audiences of the time, in a moment of history where the powers that be, looking again at you, Nixon's silent majority, when they viewed people of color in air quotes as dangerous, 
contemporary stories began to be set in the neighborhoods and the streets where black audiences could at least relate to having true agency over what was being displayed. Ozzie Davis's 1970 film Cotton Comes to Harlem and Melvin Van Peebles' 1971 masterpiece Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song could be considered the one-two punch combination that got the ball rolling in defining the subgenre of black exploitation. You can bet filmmakers knew they were onto something when studios began to take notice and wanted to cash in on that growing momentum, seeing dollar signs in their futures. MGM ended up bankrolling filmmaker Gordon Park's cool detective film, Shaft, and with its release in the summer of 1971, the genre exploded as more and more filmmakers of color came forward to try their hands at making popular cinema. If you want to see Shaft, ask your mama. Intellectuals and cultural scholars of the day worried that these portrayals seen in this new wave of film would be harmful to the strides made towards equality, as characters being seen on the screen were often gangsters, hustlers, pimps, trading on illicit and unsavory activities. But the characters portrayed were also fixers, detectives, heroes, who may or may not have been involved in quote-unquote bad activities, but then used their powers and wealth to help others improve their own situation for their own communities. Help from within, with a distinct and unmistakable through line of helping your own because the man and his politics weren't going to. Understanding the feelings of the time and also noting even where we have these characters who are card sharps, pimps, hustlers, prostitutes, gangsters on the screen, they are at their core people who even when engaged in sometimes silly and melodramatic stories are allowed to have depth feeling, and be fully realized characters. That was a far cry from what mainstream Hollywood was doing for African Americans on screen in the day. At best, in quotation marks, good black characters would be upright and honest, but they'd have no real purpose on the screen other than to serve to help a white lead. Who cares if you play a doctor if your only motivation is to tell the white guy that you're right again, sir? Good or bad, black exploitation as a genre gave African American audiences characters and stories that they could relate to, and it was growing. of this cultural renaissance, Rudy Ray Moore was clawing his way out of what one could consider his fourth career? That's depending on when you wanted to start. He had a sense of style, he had some charisma, but his previous endeavors, uh, he hadn't really had success with them. His dancing comedy act performed with his character of Prince Dumar in the late 1940s had led to him switching over to being a full-time musician. 
starting out with country-styled singing and then switching to R&B and rock during the mid-1950s through the 1960s, all the while with him trying to still perform stand-up comedy on the side. He had cut several albums that really didn't sell, but to his credit, he just kept pushing through. Moore's thunderclap moment of clarity apparently came to him in 1970, where he was working a day job at Dolphins of Hollywood that was a prominent record store and recording studio servicing the African-American community in Los Angeles. Moore had previously cut his albums with Dolphin, and it was often his music that he was playing in the store when he worked. A local wino had come in to the store named Rico and entered requesting money for Moore. Moore did eventually pay him, and as a thank you, Rico launched into one of his many, many toasts. That's a traditional telling of a filthy tall tale involving the antics of a renowned pimp known only as Dolomite. Moore noticed that while Rico was getting into the story, people there, shoppers, were held in rapt attention, clapping, laughing, and hanging on to this wino's every word. That was it. That was his angle. Moore began to seek out Rico and record more of his stories, as well as other neighborhood winos. He then began to go on stage in the local club scene, performing as a character of Dolomite, and started to build a popular following. Through his contacts at Dalton, Moore hired local musicians to be a backup jazz-playing band and recorded his own party album in his apartment, inviting friends and fans over to be his audience as he performed his now raunchy rhymes and told his ribald tall tales. We now interrupt this podcast for a walk down memory lane with Professor Eustace W. Griff. Now, for you uncultured and blatantly rude youth out there, party records existed since the early 1920s, essentially as soon as comedy albums were available to be sold commercially. The name itself is a euphemism to cover for the fact that it most often contains blue language with comedy that was extremely sexual in nature. And while they were intended to be enjoyed by adults, they were still labeled as obscene in the day, and thus were considered illegal up and through the mid-1950s. Shockingly, this did not stem the demand, nor the production of said comedy albums, and thus, to purchase one, an individual would have to go up to a store clerk and inquire as to whether they had anything for sale behind the counter, making the sale of dirty jokes all the more illicit and thus cool, as you would say. Comedian Red Fox really was the reason that party albums began to make the push into mainstream, 
with his 1955 album, Laugh of the Party, selling over 250,000 units, creating an official demand and moving the entire genre into legitimacy. And you know, coughs can be very dangerous. A lot of colds going around, and a cough can really wreck your whole life. It was a fella down there on Central Avenue the other night. Cough almost caused him to be killed. <coughs> cough got him a black eye. He coughed in his buddy's closet. <laughs> something else I just figured out. I just figured out why Robin Hood robbed the rich. Hell, the poor didn't have nothing. <laughs> I just found out that firemen have bigger balls than policemen. <laughs> yeah, you know why? They sell more tickets. <laughs> By 1960, party albums were in full swing. And while censorship wasn't completely gone, the content was constantly questioned. And albums were often still sold in brown paper wrappers with the words for adults only prominently stamped on them. Still, artists like Richard Pryor, Luanda Page, Skillet and Leroy, Lenny Bruce, and George Carlin were able to release albums on smaller labels, such as Laugh Records, openly, giving great performances and really creating an art form that would become what stand-up comedy is as we know it today. Now saying all of that, certain comics would take advantage of those for adults-only stickers. Certain artists who are entrepreneuring and into shameless self-promotion who figured out why not also grace the covers with scantily clad and outright naked women. Rudy Ray Moore was one such entrepreneur, and since he was recording, pressing, and selling all the albums himself, what was to stop him? That was Professor Eustace W. Griff. We now return you to your regularly scheduled podcast. Moore spent the early 1970s cranking out albums and touring on the established Chitlin circuit for black performers, interacting with other comedians and making some real money, as well as a name for himself. But by 1975, Moore had started to have some larger aspirations, and he wanted to get into films. Particularly, he wanted to make his own film, the same way he had done everything else up until that point. He'd finance it, he'd produce it, and he'd get his friends to help him. He sank a large portion of his savings into a film, hired actor Derville Martin to be the film's director, and explained his story ideas to screenwriter Jerry Jones, who cobbled together a loose script, bringing in Moore's alter ego, Dolomite, to the big screen. 
Comedian, club owner, and apparent beloved pimp Dolomite is cooling his heels in prison after being set up with false charges by a rival, Willie Green, as played by director Martin. His fellow madam and pimp, Queen Bee, help him get out of prison, and now, with a mission to help the man, yeah, I don't get it, take down Willie Green and his accomplice, the duplicitous Mayor Daly. Did it make sense? Not at all. Was it fun? You bet your ass it is. Dolomite was a smash hit. Made for $100,000 in earning $12 million in the box office. And Moore was now an honest-to-goodness star with clout to keep making films. And make films he did. In 1976, he financed a direct sequel to Dolomite, The Human Tornado focusing on Dolomite's ongoing adventures as a successful comedian who is yet again framed for murdering the wife this time of a racist, corrupt southern sheriff who forces Dolomite to return to his old stomping grounds in L.A. and set things right. Relying more on humor and his own brand of wacky kung fu, which Moore did not actually know, the human tornado is a different tone of action comedy than the previous work, but hey, again, he made money. By the time he was ready to finance a third theatrical outing, even Moore was aware that he was going to have to do something different. Or at least as different as Moore was capable of doing. Nineteen seventy seven saw the creation of a new character, Petey Wheatstraw who again was himself a martial arts expert club-owning stand-up comedian. Hey, what can you say? The man wrote what he... Well, at least what he wanted people to think he knew. Wheatstraw finds himself embroiled in a disagreement with the mob as well as rival comedians, and once murdered, he makes a Faustian deal with Satan to return to Earth to set things right, bringing a here-to-yet-seen morality and spiritual supernatural aspect to Moore's films. But, again, his penchant for ribald and straight-up goofy comedy remains at large. Moore once again loaded his film up with a bunch of friends and comedians that he wanted to work with, and in this case it was Leroy Daniels and Ernest Mahan, the comedy duo known as Leroy and Skillet, to be his main antagonists. I could keep talking about this, but damn, you've been ever so patient, so how about we skip all this drama and we get right to the trailer? Steve. 
position, job for you, PD. Are you willing to listen? But what do you want from me now? A son. You got to be sick. Don't give me that supernatural shit. That Dolomite man, Rudy Ray Moore, is back funnier than ever in the new movie, Pee Wee Strong. serene, Petey Wheatstraw is born into the world during a massive hurricane, emerging as a foul-mouthed, diaper-clad child of six, who knocks down his doctor and proceeds to slap around his father for, quote-unquote, disturbing my sleep every night. Horrified, the doctor runs out of the cabin screaming, but the lad is put in his place finally by his mother, who commands him to stop and gives him his name of Petey Wheatstraw. We are then treated to seeing a teenage Petey being hassled and beat up by some young toughs, but he ends up encountering a wise, quote, master of the oriental arts named Bantu, who tutors Petey in the ways of philosophy of kung fu, which, for the record, seems to be just a beat up anyone who gets in your way, and also teaches the young man how to have proper self-respect. We get a training montage that ends with a now powerful Petey swearing to his master that he will never bow before any man, living or dead. And with that, we are now fully out of Petey's childhood. 
We then jump into the future of now, where Petey is a successful comedian in L.A. who has agreed to an extended headlining stay at his friend's club, Steve's Den, much to the chagrin of his comedy rivals Leroy and Skillet, who cannot hope to compete with just how funny Petey is. The duo beg Petey not to start his engagement as their club will be opening in the next few days, and they just can't compete with him. But when he turns them down, they begin to start to threaten him. But they never actually explain to him directly why they need their club to be such a success, because he may have actually swayed his opinion for them. You see, they're in bed with the mob, who now holds a major stake in their club. If the show fails, they'll probably be killed. So now they need to find a way to shut Petey down. And Leroy and Skillet start sending waves of henchmen to harass Petey and his friends in an effort to scare him off. Me, you no business born rat soup eating son of a bitch. I want you and that fat slob partner of yours to pay me the money y'all owe me. <laughs> That's exactly what I was calling you for. I want to pay you back, but on one condition. Condition my ass is y'all that owe me. I will condition you. I'll put my foot up you and that big bear's ass both. Look, Petey, Skid and I are in a bad position. You see, uh, we want you to postpone your engagement for a few months. We borrowed a big piece of money, and we can't afford your competition. You have the nerve to call me and ask me to cancel my engagement. I wouldn't stop my show if you needed ice water in hell. So that's the way you want to play, huh, nigga? Well, you know, two of us can play that, you hear? Why, you... What was that all about? Now, listen, I want you to call Jimmy and the boys because the shit looked like it's done hit the fan. Uh, what about our little party? It'll have to wait. This is money. Business, baby. As you know, romance without finance is a damn nuisance. Petey, of course, dispatches his would-be attackers with some very awkward and flabby kung fu-esque moves, but his friends don't fare as well. During an intimidation scare gone wrong, Larry, the little brother of Petey's friend and business partner Ted, is accidentally murdered. During the funeral, Petey, Ted, Nell, and Jimmy are all gunned down in a planned hit orchestrated by Leroy and Skillet, and instead of dying outright, Time seems to stop, and Petey finds himself face to face with the devil, who has an offer for him. Petey? Petey Wheatstraw. Petey Wheatstraw. Who are you, man? My card. Lucifer? A small mistake on the part of the printer. Actually, it's pronounced... Lucifer. Are you responsible for all this madness? In most cases, I am, but in this particular instance, I happen to walk upon this disaster. You may stand up. Yes. The others are, you might say, out to lunch. 
but what do you want from me, man? My, my, you're quite direct. I like that. She will like that, too. She will. We'll talk about that later. Your problem seems to be right now. I have a proposition to offer you, Petey. Are you willing to listen? Your propositions, you always wind up on top. Just like the shit that you done to Adam and Eve. Oh, Petey, I was young then. My salad days. My style today is much more sophisticated. Well, what do you want from me now? A son. <laughs> you got to be sick. How in the hell can I give you a son? By simply marrying my daughter. What's in the deal for me, man? Gaze upon the roots of all this madness as you Well, you don't have to worry about Petey no more, boss. He's resting in peace. Good. Now that he's resting in peace, we can rest in peace, too. <laughs> <laughs> Lively times. Happy time. Happy time is here. <laughs> Leroy and Skillet. I knew it was them two big fat slobby son of a bitches. Yes, they felt threatened by your upcoming show in town. Well, why kill a little boy like that in cold blood? If you would just calm down a moment and listen, perhaps we can work things out. I'm listening. Marry my daughter and give her a child. And I will arrange it for you to have your life back. To strut and fret your hour upon the stage again. Revenge will be yours, Petey Wheatstraw. No, this madness, man, you got to be sick. Well, Petey, prepare to die. Let your wisdom be your weapon. Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. this son that you need so badly. By the way, what does your daughter look like? Here, yeah, I hope beauty has nothing to do with our proposition. <laughs> oh, hell no, man. I, no, 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 I won't marry a deal or no deal. Kill me, man. Kill me. <laughs> yes, my daughter is quite unfortunate. Very well, Petey. Wisdom. Lucifer makes Petey an offer. He agrees to marry his daughter, and he can once again walk the earth imbued with the powers of hell to seek vengeance. The devil's daughter is not shown, but Petey seeing a picture describes her as being so ugly she could scare a hungry bulldog off a truck of meat. Still, hearing the voice of Bantu in his head and pressing him to think about the situation and apply wisdom, Petey reluctantly agrees to marry the devil's daughter and sire him an heir. Petey is granted powers, a new stylish red and black outfit, and is given the gift of Satan's magic pimp cane, which Petey can utilize to have his vengeance at last. Petey then restores all of his friends back to life and explains to them both the deal and the powers that he now has at his disposal. From there, he quickly moves in to ruin Leroy and Skillet's opening night. That's the way it was. I'm not lying. That's some crazy shit, isn't it? Crazy, yeah. But man, you're making a deal with the devil. 
You know how things like that turn out. And anyway, I think I'd rather be dead than marry some of this. The main thing, man, I'm still alive. Now listen, I can figure out a way to keep from marrying the devil's daughter. But the main thing, we've got to deal with Leroy and Skillet right now. But Petey, I'm scared. Now, you know how powerful the devil is, and if you cross him, he's going to be mad as hell. I mean, heaven. Oh, shit. Oh, Nell, you always worry. Now, you know I can take care of things. Ted, Ted, are you all right? Man, I ain't going to rest until I settle with Scarface Willie. Petey attends Leroy and Skillet's opening night. And when they come out on stage, he uses his powers to first make Leroy and Skillet insult their mob benefactor and his wife, guaranteeing that they're going to be murdered by a bunch of wise guys, much to their horror. The show then devolves from there, with them insulting the rest of the audience as well, before Petey unleashes a fiery windstorm inside the club, causing the joint to be evacuated, and the club begins to burn down. In the alley outside, Ted manages to get revenge on the trigger man that murdered his brother, and all the while Petey, enjoying his newfound abilities, just laughs. Petey quickly attempts to save his soul and double-cross the devil, but not before enjoying a bachelor party that Lucifer throws for him with a group of lusty succubi. Petey's only real plan to oppose his would-be father-in-law and his ugly would-be wife is to get a wino off the street with the rest of his crew. They get him extra liquored up, and then they dress him up to be Petey's stand-in at the altar. Now, unfortunately, so much time elapses that the wino begins to wake up halfway through the ceremony, which tips off the devil that he is being played, and causing him to call a squad of kung fu demons to attack Petey and the rest of his gang. Petey does manage to fight off all these hellish assailants, and with the aid of his magic cane, comes through victorious. Unfortunately, he's only got a few moments because in his hubris, he walks into the street and enters a car that he assumes his crew has pulled up for him, only to realize he has gotten into the wrong vehicle. His friends across the street in the proper car scream in horror as Petey discovers his driver and the matching valet are now the very much dead Leroy and Skillet, and his father-in-law happily greets him from the front seat as he is grabbed by his most ugly bride in a passionate embrace. Petey screams as the credits roll. Where do we even begin with this? For starters, credit given where credit is due. If Moore does anything, it's he sticks with what he knows. Like we said, even with this new character, Petey Wheatstraw is just a veiled riff on the already established Dolomite legend. He is essentially born a rational full child and immediately slaps his father, telling him he's now in charge of the house. That's a synthesis of the original Dolomite toast. The character is yet again, shockingly, a comedian slash club owner who is enjoying wild success and status before he meets his unfortunate end, which obviously becomes then our story's beginning. And let's transition there. This is an interesting take on a Faustian bargain. The devil and man strike a deal, and then one is forced to abide by some very harsh, hard rules. But at the same time, 
both tries to weasel his way out of things and to use his newfound abilities and powers to have a positive effect on his local environment. Such as in the case of Petey Wheatstraw, he uses the magic cane to affect the neighborhood and right various wrongs against the locals. Take for example, when he specifically does with the cane. He goes out, he ruins Leroy and Skillet, yes, bringing about their downfall, but then there's a whole montage of him saving a child from being hit by a car. He turns a fat woman thin, he transmogrifies a junker car into a shiny new one, and then he changes a cheating husband into a small, silly, happy dog at the request of an irate wife. I also have to say, I very much enjoy actor G. Tito Shaw's portrayal of Lucifer. What's great is, he's not evil personified per se, rather he just looks a little mischievous and slightly annoyed whenever Petey attempts to back out of his deal or tries to even talk to him about marrying the daughter. And while we're on that subject, something that does somewhat bother me is the bait and switch they attempt to pull at the end. Uh, you know, the devil and pet seem to be fairly on the ball. So how they go about doing this by, you know, getting a wino liquored up, and they seemingly lose interest in their own idea halfway through putting it into effect. They get that wino blackout drunk, they dress him up like Petey, but then they just wait around for hours before the actual wedding occurs, you know, before they push him in to be the stand-in for the groom. If they really wanted it to work, wouldn't they have done it sooner, or at least, you know, kept him good and liquored up? It's bananas, and it's a funny concept, it's just, they sort of even give up on it, and that's what makes it so strange. Now, I get it, it's probably just lazy writing, and it's probably also, we need an excuse to allow Petey, because this is a Rudy Ray Moore movie, to get into some kung fu shenanigans with people. And that's, of course, when he also busts out his loyal army of karate friends to take on the devil's own squad of kung fu demons. It, it just has all the markers of we're running out of ideas, and most importantly, and probably most true, money. So let's just finish the film this way. Is it shoddy? Yes. But that fact doesn't ruin anything we see here, and even when it doesn't work, it almost comes around again to the other side of being brilliant as just being how truly weird it is to fit an already weird story. It heightens it, and this is just another reason to love it. Now, in the scope of Moore's filmography, this movie is no less silly than his other offerings, but I have to say, out of the four films he did, Wheatstraw remains my personal favorite, if only for the fact that it's truly rangy. The tone is undeniably darker, but all over the place at the same time. I mean, we're treated to a very bizarre setup. Hey, we would like you to postpone your show so we can have a successful opening night. No. Okay, now 20-odd people are massacred at a child's funeral. My, that escalated rather quickly. Another bizarre thing occurs. The movie literally stops about 20 minutes in for more to almost completely break character and just do a stand-up set, and it's all crowd work, essentially performing insult comedy and playing the dozens with a bunch of people in the nightclub audience. 
I'm not certain if this was in the movie just to pad it out for time, or more just wanted again to remind us of his day job, but it's a very strange hiccup that takes us out of what little story that exists here. So, how was this film received? Well, truth be told, I've not been able to get my hands on the actual box office information for P.D. Wheatstra. Based on the fact that Moore was able to finance yet another movie after it, I think it's safe to bet it at least was commercially successful enough for him to make his money back on it, plus a little extra scratch to refinance. P.D. Wheatstraw was met with negative to tepid reviews, but once again, I have to point out, this is a black exploitation film that was not intended for a wide commercial release to all audiences. It understandably has earned its place as a cult film and has had a long shelf life as a video store staple. Wheatstraw also marked the end of more creating successful films, because his next project, the equally interesting but not as good offering, The Disco Godfather, you know, it's your classic story about a retired cop who opens a roller disco and then uses his influence to combat drug dealers entering his neighborhood, that old chestnut, it ended up bankrupting Moore when it was a box office bomb. Now, to his credit, Moore continued to show up in cameos in other films, often in his Dolomite persona, but he was never named as such. He continued to tour and release albums, but the culture had really moved on and Moore himself was a little bit stale. He did see a bit of a cultural renaissance, first in the early 90s, when rising rap stars were crediting him for influencing hip-hop, and all of them were starting to sample his albums and his work. Big Daddy Kane, Snoop Dogg, Two Live Crew, Buster Rhymes, all included clips from Rudy Ray Moore's act, as well as from his movies. Some actually ended up having Moore come on and record on their albums proper. Moore would go on to reprise the role of Petey Wheatstraw on the rapper Blowfly's song, I Live for the Funk, in 2007, capping off a 30th anniversary of the film itself. The song would be released the following year in 2008, which is sadly one of the last projects that Moore would ever work on, before his own death at the age of 81 in October of the same year, brought on by complications from diabetes. And yet now, here we stand, over a decade later, and Moore is having yet again another renaissance, albeit posthumously. Screenwriting legends Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski have teamed up with comedian Eddie Murphy to complete a project that the three of them have wanted to do together since the late 1980s, and that's bring Rudy Ray Moore's story to the big screen. Netflix premiered Dolomite Is My Name in September of 2019, a biographical comedy that has been both a critical and commercial success, and it has gone on to be nominated for multiple awards. So it looks like, for the time being, more is here to stay. The version of P.D. Wheatstraw screened here at the LSCE was the 2002 Xenon Pictures DVD release from the Dolomite Collection box set. 
While that entire box set is still available on Amazon, and that includes Dolomite, The Human Tornado, P.D. Wheatstraw, The Disco Godfather, Rude, The Dolomite Legacy, and a concert film of more doing songs and comedy, that could be yours for the price of $29.99, which is still not a bad deal for all that you get. And the individual disc versions of the Xenon DVDs of just P.D. Wheatstraw the Singular DVD can be obtained itself for $9.26. For those of you with more discerning taste and a little bit of a deeper set of pockets, Vinegar Syndrome in 2016 released a brand new restored 2K print of the film from the original 35mm negative and has released it on a special edition Blu-ray DVD combo and they've included new bonus features and for the price of $23.99 I would argue it's well worth it. Now remember folks, we don't get anything here for telling you where to purchase items, we just think it's important that we continue to support physical media so these great distributors can keep releasing the content that we love so much. And really, at the end of the day, isn't that what it's about? Seeing the stuff you love. Besides, how can you go wrong with such an offbeat, weird bit of fun that is a film like P.D. Wheatstraw? So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you for joining us. If you like us, please follow us on our Facebook page at The Linden Street Cinema Experience and recommend us to friends. We're also on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at LSCEP. Please follow or subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. If you're an Apple Podcast user, please, we would greatly appreciate a five-star and a review. That helps folks find us and listen to us. We're also featured on Podchaser.com. That's a podcast database for creators and listeners of podcasts alike. Check us out there. Give us a like if you could and review us, please. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, or just send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to have even more of a personal interaction or wish to contribute a segment on the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy, everybody.